0: So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together to fellowship around the teaching of your word to be challenged in these opening chapters of Genesis with a, a worldview that relates to the origins of the human race, their purpose uh, in your plan, purpose as it relates to uh, the outworking of the plan of salvation as well as its role within the angelic conflict. Now, Father, we pray that as we study these things that you would challenge us with their, the, the lessons we learned, but we will also gain a greater appreciation for, for how you are working in history. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, this evening we're coming to the last part of this third, what is actually the fourth, Toledot section. Now remember I said at the introduction that Genesis is divided in terms of its structure according to the language of the Hebrew by this Hebrew word, Toledot. Looks like this in the In the Hebrew, T-O-L-E-D-O-T. And it's translated in different ways. These are the generations of. These are the records of. This is the history of what happened to. uh, That's the general idea. And the Toledot comes at the beginning of a section. So the first section that we had... It was really the introduction, Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3. That was the first section, which is the prologue to the book and is the creation of the heavens and the earth. And then we have these are the generations, or this is what happened to the heavens and the earth that God created. And that's the second section, Genesis 2, 4, down through the end of chapter 4. Then Genesis 5 1 through 6 8 gives us the generations of Adam or what happened to the descendants of Adam. And then the next section, Genesis 6 9 down through the end of chapter 9, which is verse 29, you have the uh, generations of, these are the generations of, of Noah. So this is what happens to the descendants of Noah. And that covers the whole episode related to uh, the flood and God's judgment of that antediluvian civilization. And then starting in ten one you have this is what happens, or this is the Toledot. Uh, this is what happens to Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The transition occurs in this last part of Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 18. So open your Bibles uh, with me to Genesis uh, 9, 18. Now this is one of the most bizarre episodes in the Scripture and one that raises a lot of questions, some of which we don't uh, know the answer to. There's been a lot of speculation about different elements of this, and I'm going to try to cut past some of that speculation as we go through our study. Uh, the first two verses, Genesis 9:18 uh, 9, and 19, give us an introduction to this uh, conclusion. This is really the epilogue. If you look at the this fourth toledot from 6:9 9 to 9:29. 9, Nine eighteen to 29 is the epilogue, it's the conclusion, it's the uh, shift of focus that we see introduced in verse 18. So 18 and 19 is a transition. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. Now we already know who the sons of Noah are, according to Genesis 5:32, Genesis 6:10, and Genesis 7:13, and they're always listed in this order: Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Every time that they're mentioned, it's in this particular order. We don't know if that's the birth order or if that is the, their priority. My suspicion is this is their priority. This is not the age, but Shem is in priority because. Shem is the one who is blessed by the Lord because of his righteousness and because of his uh, positive volition. Shem is the one who is the father of the Semites, and we'll get into all of that in Genesis 10 and 11 when we go through what is called the table of nations. But here we're just introduced again to the sons. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Noah just had these three sons. They're all born after Noah is 500 years of age. They're all born after he receives the warning from God that God's going to destroy the earth. He only has these three sons. There are no other children uh, that we know of. And these three are believers. And it is from these three and their wives that the whole earth is populated. So there's a shift here now from the focus on Noah and what God is doing in Noah, which has been the focus from six nine down through nine seventeen, to what happens with his three sons. So it's this this section functions as a transition from the uh, ark episode to what happens to mankind after the flood. Is mankind going to be any better than he was before the flood? After this tremendous judgment, which should put the fear of God into these eight people, having watched the horrible de- de- destruction of the earth through this worldwide cataclysm, you would think that they would have a uh, po- major positive volition towards God. But as we will see, there is uh, just as much a problem with sin and corruption after the flood as there was uh, before the flood. So as we look at this, we have to ask the question of why is the author reminding us of who Shem, Ham, and Japheth are. And it's because of the last sentence in verse 18, and Ham was the father of Canaan. This is the shift. Twice we're going to be told in this section that Ham is the father of Canaan. So what is the emphasis? The emphasis is on Canaan. Now Canaan is the youngest of Ham's sons. He is not the first. So Ham has three other sons according to uh, chapter 10, verse 6. And these other sons are Cush, Mizraim Put, and Canaan. And next time we will get into the fact that these are the uh, eponymous ancestors of these various nations. Mizraim is Egypt, and Canaan is, of course, the Canaanites. And I'm singling those two out for a particular reason. But these uh, two grandsons of Noah uh, are, play a vital role in the history of Israel. But the focus isn't on the other three sons. The focus is on Canaan. Now, we must ask when we get into this, this seems like some little tawdry sexual episode here, and there's hints of uh, sexual misconduct. There's a suggestion of of moral uh, turpitude, and we need to ask why this is here. Why do we have this uh, odd little story with this cursing and blessing Statement uh, given at this particular point in Genesis, and that is because there is an emphasis here on Canaan twice in this uh, section, verse 18, and again in verse 22. We're told that Ham is the father of Canaan, and then after the episode where uh, Noah gets drunk and his uh, he is he just takes his clothes off and lies naked in his tent, and this is considered a disgraceful. And uh, Ham is ridiculing, showing disrespect for his father. There's a lot of overtones there that uh, uh, we'll look at. But when Noah wakes up and realizes that he has been treated in a shameful manner by Ham, it is not Ham who he curses, it's Canaan who he curses. So what's going on here? That's what we need to uh, to answer because this section isn't just some odd little episode that sticks in here. It's setting the stage for what's going to happen in chapter 10 and what's going to happen in chapter 11 and ultimately what's going to happen in chapter 12. What God is showing here and the Holy Spirit is showing in the in the narrative is that things aren't any better after the flood than they were before the flood despite the fact that there's been this incredible worldwide judgment where I believe two or three billion people have been destroyed on the planet and you've got eight people left to start everything over just like Adam and Eve, you still have the same problem that man's heart is deceitful and wicked above all things and that it only takes a generation and the human race is as decadent and as perverted as it was before the flood. And this plays itself out in the subsequent generations, specifically through the descendants of Ham. And so it then becomes necessary as we go through Genesis 10 and 11, and we see the, we'll get to the episode of the uh, Tower of Babel, that it's that mankind is just, is not positive. Mankind is in rebellion against God, and God must, in order to execute His plan of salvation, He must focus within one. A segment of the human race, and all of this from this point through chapter 11 sets the stage for God calling out Abraham and working specifically through Abraham and his descendants in order to bring in uh, the Messiah. So these chapters are a devastating critique of what happens in the human race. And if you are reading this when it was first written, who are you? You're a Jew. Remember Moses wrote this during the time of the wandering in the wilderness and he's writing this to provide a foundation. Specifically Genesis is written as the introduction to the five books of the Pentateuch. You have to look at the Pentateuch as one total uh, literary structure and Genesis is the historical prelude to the Exodus. And by the time Moses writes the law, of course, by the law I mean the Torah, the first five books of the the Old Testament called the Pentateuch, that when when, when Moses writes this, the Jews are in the plains of Moab and they are on the verge of invading Canaan. And they're given seek and destroy orders by God to annihilate the entire population, man, woman, and child, including all of their animals. And God is going to wipe out the Canaanite civilization, completely remove it from the face of the earth down to their livestock. He wants to show, one of the reasons he's doing that is to show that that he's going to provide for the Jews. They don't need to acquire anything that's the result of the pagan civilization of the Canaanites. And all of this, of course, goes back to what happens in Genesis 9, 9, 18 to 29. If you're a Jew sitting outside the land and you read uh, this episode with Noah, you are, you are seeing the foreshadowing of what's going to happen to the Canaanites in their ancestor uh, Canaan. So this begins to set up the human race and what will take place during the uh, period uh, subsequent to the flood. So the final episode sets a rather ominous tone for what's going to come up. Here all of a sudden you have Noah who is isolated because of his righteousness and he receives grace from God and finds grace in the eyes of the Lord back in chapter 6. And all of a sudden you come to chapter 9 and here he's pictured as a fall-down drunk who is involved in some sort of morally reprehensible episode. So all of a sudden we're getting a different picture of Noah here than what we've had up to this particular point. So we need to ask what is going on here. Well, verses 18 and 19 introduce the shift from Noah to the sons. That's what this is about. It's about the descendants and how the descendants of Noah are just as corrupt morally due to the uh, indwelling sin nature as the generations preceding the flood. Verse 19 reads, These three were the sons of Noah, and from these three the whole earth was populated. Now, actually, this is not a good translation. It's a difficult translation in the in the Hebrew. The verb here is nafaz. In fact, I was looking at one of the new translations that's out that everybody that some people seem to be so excited about, called the uh, NET translation, and they completely misidentified the Hebrew verb here according to all the major lexicons. It looks something like this, naphatz, N-A-P-H-A-T-Z, and it means to scatter or to disperse, and it is not a niphal, which is a passive form, which is how that particular Bible identified it but it's a cow which means it's supposed to be understood as an active voice so what we have here is the whole earth is dispersed the whole earth is the subject of the verb and it really is it's, while it's talking about the, the whole earth it, you, the author is using that terminology to take us back to genesis 1 this is what's happening to the heavens and the earth so the whole earth becomes dispersed from these three this is the emphasis is that it's only these three They come off the ark and their wives, the six, that are then the uh, progenitors of all of these people that are described in Genesis 10 and 11. They will be the ones to populate the entire earth. And what we see in this episode is that the virtues and vices of Noah's sons are going to be played out across the centuries in their descendants Now this really plays into a very contemporary argument that we have today. You talk to people dealing with any kind of a problem from uh, homosexuality to alcoholism and you get this nature versus nurture argument. Nature being, well, they're just born that way. It's their genetic predisposition. There's a homosexual gene or there's an alcohol gene or there's a you know, thievery gene or murder gene and that's their gene and that's their nature and how can you hold them accountable for something that's just the way they're born? And then of course the nurture argument is that that uh, well this is a product of their environment and they have some accountability or decision making in the process. And of course the Bible comes down on both sides. There is a nature aspect. There is a genetic predisposition. We're seeing this played out in this very episode. Canaan and his uh, sexual or, or inclinations towards sexual perversion and sexual deviancy is the ancestor to the Canaanites, and they display uh, his genetic predisposition. But even though there are genetic predispositions that we all have to certain sins, we're still responsible. We can still say no. We don't have to yield to those uh, predisposition. Some of you are predisposed to mental attitude sins of anger or bitterness or whatever it may be. Others of you are predisposed to more overt sins. Some people are predisposed towards sexual sins. Other people are predisposed towards power lust and sins in that particular area. And uh, as we get older, we begin to see certain things. Some of you who are young don't realize this yet, but wait till you're 40 and you start realizing you that you're turning into your mother or your father. Um, those of us who are getting older, we're beginning to see that. It's real scary to look in the mirror and see one of our parents there. But what we see is we, the, the same trends of the sin nature that were displayed in our parents, we, we seem to inherit those. But that doesn't mean we're not accountable. That doesn't mean we're not uh, volitionally responsible. But that's the emphasis of the scripture: is that there are certain character traits that are passed on, ethnically and tribally, through their, these progenitors, and they they will. And that's the function of the of the uh, blessing and the curse on Noah's three sons in verses 24 uh, through 28: is that certain characteristics will dominate in terms of their descendants. But the emphasis is still on the law of volitional responsibility. Well, the event that causes all of this is then described in verses 20 to 23, and it's described in somewhat abbreviated terms. It raises almost as many questions, uh, or raises more questions than it answers, actually. It begins, And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Now, the first word that appears in the Hebrew text is the word that is translated began and it is the Hebrew verb halal. C-H-A-L-A-L. Halal. And this indicates either the f- first time something is done, the first time ever, and it also indicates the first time in a series. So it may have been done before, but now the series is starting over again. The reason I point that out is because uh, as you get into this little episode where Noah plants a vineyard and then he har- obviously he harvests the grapes and he mashes the grapes and it, into juice and then it ferments and it becomes wine, a lot of time goes by. A lot of things aren't said here. All it says is he plants a vineyard and then he drinks the wine. So it skips over a lot of details and it further furthermore we're not told when this happened it obviously didn't happen right after he came off the ark it took a while noah lives as we're told at the end of the section that he lives another 350 years after the flood well that puts him within a couple of hundred years i believe of abraham he lives a long time he sees great, 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 great grandchildren born. He sees some of his great grandchildren die before he dies. Noah was actually, Noah and his sons lived much longer than their grandsons or great-grandsons. Well, I'll put a chart up here next time when we start to deal with the ages of these patriarchs. But they were viewed by subsequent generations as gods. In fact, there's uh, tremendous amount of work was done in previous uh, centuries, showing that the different mythological structures that you have in in Greece and in, in Canaan and in, in Babylon and Egypt uh, really identified uh, some of these patriarchs Noah, Ham, Shem, and Japh- or Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and others, with various gods. They were viewed as gods because they lived so long; they were able to accomplish so much. That they were virtually deified by subsequent generations. We'll get into that more when we get into the next uh, chapter. But uh, Noah has developed a farm. He is, and he develops a vineyard and he gets drunk. Now, I think this happens much later. By, it's, it, for one thing, Canaan has to be born and grow to adulthood before this happens. So this is 20, 30, could be 100 years after they came off the ark. Noah, uh, it says Noah began to be a farmer. Some people think he is the first coming off of the ark. He's the first to develop um, viticulture, which is the science of the vine and developing wine. Others suggest that That the situation is different after the flood, and so that uh, you could fermentation took place a lot quicker. And he's caught by surprise. He drinks, thinking it's grape juice. He drinks it and he gets drunk. Others suggest that that uh, bacteria functioned uh, for the first time here, and you, you didn't even have fermentation prior to the flood. There's no scientific basis for that. All of those suggestions have one common presupposition or assumption, and that is poor old Noah. He didn't know he was getting drunk. He's really a good guy. He's a great hero of the faith. Noah wouldn't get drunk. That's the presupposition. That misses the theological thrust of this episode. This whole episode is designed to show the corruption of even Noah after the flood, that the human race has still fallen, and still as much guilty of sin as before the flood. So the halal here does not, it can mean first or it can mean first in a series. So the reason I just, I'm bringing that out is simply to conclude that there's nothing lexically, that means in terms of the words that are used, syntactically in terms of the grammar that's used, or scientifically to argue that, This is the first development of wine or fermentation. In fact, over the uh, last few years, as I've had opportunities to sit down with creationists who are scientists and in the field of biology and other areas, I've asked the question, was there something different on the earth? Is there bacteria now functioning in fermentation that wasn't there before? Well, bacteria that functions in fermentation, the same are similar to bacteria that functions in any kind of decomposition. And you certainly have bacteria functioning prior to the flood and after the flood, so there's there's nothing here scientifically to indicate that uh, that this is the first time that alcohol is developed or the first time that wine is developed or the first time that people get drunk. so Noah gets drunk, it just shows that he uh, He's, he's got a sin nature like everybody else. I know all kinds of Christians who went out to eat and had one glass of wine too many and ended up getting a little drunk. That doesn't mean that, uh, that they were taken by surprise or they didn't know that the wine was alcoholic. <laughs> See, this is a silly kind of presupposition here. Noah uh, understands what is, what is going on here. And he just gets, gets drunk, drinks too much wine, and he goes into his tent and he becomes uncovered in his tent. Now there's a, before I go any further in this, there's an important thing to notice to, re, to sort of emphasize that what the author is showing us is the continued corruption of the human heart through indwelling sin. There is a parallel between uh, what is said here and the vocabulary that's used at this, in this uh, uh, episode and that concerning the fall of Adam. There's a, First of all, there's a parallel between Adam and Noah in that they share the same profession. They are workers of the soil. And Adam is told that after the fall that now the soil is going to bring forth uh, thorns and thistles, and so there will be antagonism from the soil. And Noah is a worker of the soil. This is verse 20. He became a farmer, literally one who worked the ground, Adamah. And the word for soil is Adamah, which its root is Adam. And so there is a definite uh, word that is used there in order to make that connection between Noah and Adam. Second thing, both episodes, Adam and Noah, both episodes use the language of cursing and blessing. You have cursing and blessing here in verses 24 to 28, and you have cursing and blessing in Genesis 3, 14 through 17. Furthermore, third area of parallelism, both episodes talk about the shame of nakedness. Prior to the fall, man and the woman are naked. They're not ashamed. As soon as the fall occurs, they realize their nakedness and they're ashamed and they run and hide and try to cover up their nakedness. And here you have the shame of, the, uh, of, of Noah when he's drunk and he is lying uh, uncovered and naked in his tent. Fourth area of parallel, like Adam, Adam's sin causes strife in the family. The first thing that we see is Cain is murdering Abel. And in this situation, Noah's transgression results in a strife between the members of the family and there is conflict and family division. Furthermore, there are a number of Hebrew words that are used in both episodes. The tree of knowledge in the garden is said to be in the midst of the garden uses the Hebrew word betok, in the middle of the garden. And then we read that Noah... In verse 21 is Betok. He's in the middle of his tent. The woman in Genesis chapter 3 saw the fruit that it was good, Ra'ah, and Ham comes in and sees Ra'ah, the nakedness of his father. The brothers don't see the nakedness of his father. In 9.23 they look the other way and they hold up a, uh, a, a robe so they can't see. Adam and Eve knew they were naked in three Genesis three seven using the Hebrew word yada for knowledge, and Noah then awakens after his drunken stupor, and he knows yada what his uh, son Ham had done to him. Uh, God asks uh, Adam and Eve who told you that you were naked and uses the Hebrew word nagad, and then Ham comes out after he sees his father and he's ridiculing his father. And, in, and he says, and the text says that Ham told his brothers about his father's uh, nakedness in verse 22 using the Hebrew word nagad. So if you're reading this in the English, you can't help but see a, an, an intentional parallelism because of vocabulary and, and, uh, and instances between both the, both the, the Noah episode and the fall of Adam. And so the point is to show that the corruption that Adam created continues despite the judgment of the flood. The other just a side note is that in the ancient most ancient mythologies, it is the gods who invent wine and then give it to man in Egypt. it's the god Osiris, and in uh, the, among the Greeks, it was the god Dionysius. But the scriptural view, is that wine is part of creation and that it was part of God's good creation given to man to give him joy and that's in judges chapter 9 verse 13 and then psalm 104:15 says that wine was given for the joy of man's soul so the scripture does not have a view that wine or alcohol alcoholic beverage is inherently Evil, But it is designed to give man joy, but it is to be used in a modest way and in a moderate way. And while drinking or the use of alcoholic beverage is not forbidden by Scripture, drunkenness is. So Adam begins to farm and he has a vineyard and he gets uh, the, makes the new wine and he gets drunk. And then in verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, told his two brothers outside. That seems to be the thrust of what the text says is the problem. Now there's a certain amount of innuendo here when, it, when verse 21 says that he became uncovered in his tent. In, in Leviticus 18 through, or chapter 18 through chapter 20, the terminology becoming uncovered is often used as a euphemism for sexual perversion. And this was a problem with the Canaanites. But it's also used a couple of times in G- in the book of Genesis in a non-pejorative manner, in a, in a non-critical manner. And so ob- it appears that all Noah is guilty of here, and there's all kinds of, of uh, speculation, but it seems that all he's guilty of is getting drunk, and he he's a fall-down drunk, and he goes in his tent, and he strips his clothes off and falls down, and he's lying there naked. Now, in the ancient world, nakedness was still clearly associated with the shame of sin. And that, that continues through many of the ancient Near Eastern cultures so that it was uh, un- considered immodest, it was considered immoral to show much flesh. So you don't have a m- much different idea of flesh than you have in modern America or even uh, in Europe. Just uh, go to any beach over in Europe during the summer and you'll see more flesh than you ever thought you would see. Uh, they just have a different view, but see a lot of that is a result of pagan thought. In the ancient world that was still closely associated to uh, the events of Genesis. They understood that nakedness was a sign and a, a realization of it was shameful and was associated with uh, with sin. Not that we should be uh, uh, have a certain have a legalistic attitude. Uh, toward that, but a recognition of of, that this is part of sin. What happens in pagan cultures where they uh, have a lot of, uh, let's just say, skin exposure, is that it's it's trying to act as if there is no curse for sin and that we're not living in a fallen world. So it was considered shameful. You read through the passages in the Mosaic Law, it's considered shameful to uh, expose yourself. And so Noah is He's 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 a fall down drunk and he's uh, very sh- guilty of shameful conduct in terms of just falling down naked in his tent. And Ham, notice Ham is emphasized as the father of Canaan. See that's the point is it's not Ham. I mean Ham is the one who is guilty of the act, but it's his his descendants through Canaan that's the issue. He sees the nakedness of his father. And he comes outside and tells his two brothers. Now there's a lot of uh, guesswork as to what exactly Ham is guilty of. Uh, There's one view that says, well, Ham wasn't guilty of anything. It was actually Canaan who went in, and it is the one who committed the infraction. But that's not what the text says. The text says it's Ham. Secondly, the phrase, saw the nakedness of his father... Is taken by some to be a euphemism for some sort of sexual sin. There is certainly a negative sexual innuendo there. Now, the Talmud took the view that Noah was that that uh, Ham castrated Noah in an attempt to destroy his power. So this is really a a power play, and this was probably filtered into the Talmudic thinking from ideas in a number of ancient Near Eastern uh, mythological systems where you have. Uh, In one particular episode, I think it is uh, uh, Kronos or or Uranus who is uh, castrated by his son as an attempt to destroy his power, and this sort of uh, is borrowed, I think, by the Talmud. Others think that there was a sexual sin with Noah's wife, that Ham went in and committed incest. Uh, Others think that there was some sort of homosexual act involved, that this... Uh, is really a euphemism for sexual deviancy as, as it's used in Leviticus 18 through 20. But the emphasis, and then another reason that people come to that conclusion is because of the wording in verse 24 that Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. But the verbiage had done to him doesn't mean that he had performed some sort of physical act to him. It can simply be that he had treated him with disrespect. And this is what is actually said in the text. Noah goes in, and he sees the nakedness of his father, that here he should respect him, he should honor his father, and instead he ridicules him, and he goes outside and he tells his two brothers. And the behavior that is contrasted in the passage itself is that... Ham goes in, sees his father's nakedness, and comes out and ridicules him to his brothers. But his brothers take a garment, lay it on their shoulders, and they go into the room backwards so they don't look upon their father's nakedness. And they cover their father. Their faces are turned away so they do, cannot look upon their father's nakedness. What is contrasted here is the attitude of respect, the attitude of of one who is honoring, of the two brothers who are honoring their father and who have a sense of propriety versus the other son who treats his father in a uh, disrespectful and inappropriate manner. Then Noah awakens in verse 24, knows what his son has done to him and treated him disrespectfully, and he says, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. Now, he uses the word arur here, which is the stronger of two words used in Hebrew for a curse. It's only used one time before this in Genesis 3, uh, 15, when it's talking about the serpent is cursed. Uh, So Canaan is now cursed, and he will be a servant of servants, and he shall be to his brethren, a slave of slaves. He will be... Uh, as the, His descendants will be the worst of slaves. Now, it's important to notice he's not cursing Ham. So you have the three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham has four sons, the youngest of which is Canaan. It is Canaan who gets the curse. Ham receives neither blessing or curse, Shem receives blessing, and Japheth receives blessing. So all of the other descendants of Ham, as we'll see this time, this, this include all the Asian people, includes the African, <coughs> African blacks, and it in, includes uh, uh, most of your uh, <coughs> Oceanic Islanders, American Indians, all are descendants of Ham. Shem produces... Uh, most notably, the Jews, plus some other groups, and Japheth produces your Indo, uh, Indo-European races. Now, some people in a, a couple of hundred years ago tried to argue that this curse on Canaan was really a curse on black Africans, and that they would and they used that as an argument to justify uh, chattel slavery. But this is completely outside. They, they missed the point of the passage. The point of the passage has to do with Canaan and why the Jews giving beginning to give justification for why the Jews have a right to go into the land of Canaan and to take it for themselves and why God is justified in giving an order to destroy all of the Canaanites, man, woman, and child, and livestock. So we have to keep our focus on uh, the overall context of this episode in Genesis and in the overall in the overall Pentateuch. So Canaan is is cursed because in this little episode what we see is a foreshadowing of the kind of immoral uh, rebellious attitude of the Canaanites towards any authority specifically God and how this is played out in the uh, sexual perversity and sexual deviancy of the Canaanites. It's also interesting that the Canaanites are often associated in passages such as Leviticus 18 and others with the Egyptians. And it is in those religions, and as well as the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Canaanites were those ancient Near Eastern cultures within which you had some of the greatest uh, sexual perversion associated with, the, uh, <coughs> with the fertility worship. And that was later borrowed by the Greeks and, and others, but it had its origin in the Egyptian, uh, Babylonian, Canaanite uh, areas and those descendants of, of Ham. So Canaan is cursed in verse 25. In verse 26, Noah said, Blessed be the Lord, that is Yahweh. Notice it's the sacred te- tetragrammaton there indicated in your English Bible by uh, a capitalized L-O-R-D. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and there's a play on words here. Uh, the Jews today will call God the Name, and instead of reading Ad- uh, even reading Adonai in place of Yahweh, they will often just say the Name. Well, the Hebrew word for Name is Shem. So what you have here is a little word play or pun. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. So Shem of the three sons has a certain uh, he's he's positive to God. He is is emphasizing his own spiritual life, and he has a life of righteousness. So the blessing goes to Shem, and may Canaan be his slave. And this is what happens in the conquest of of uh, the, of Canaan, where the Canaanites are the servants or slaves of the Jews. Then in verse twenty seven, may God enlarge Japheth and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his slave. And so there's a blessing for Japheth, and he is going to dwell in the tents of Shem. This is what happens eventually in history. You have the spiritual blessing going through the Jews in the Old Testament, and then there's a shift in the church age to the emphasis on the Gentiles. And that plays itself out in that God enlarges Japheth, And Japheth is the father of your Indo-European countries, Greeks, Romans, and the Greeks come to dwell in the tents of Shem in the church age when there's a shift from a Jewish emphasis to a Gentile emphasis. And once you get into the book of Acts, you notice that all three of these uh, representative groups are evidenced there. There's the Ethiopian eunuch, a descendant of Ham, who is saved. And then there is the Cornelius, the Roman centurion, who is the uh, Japhethite who is saved. And then there are, of course, the disciples who are all uh, Semites, descendants of Shem. This sets the stage for human history. And in the next couple of weeks, as we go through Genesis 10 and 11, and the descendants of these three, we will see that this this, uh, blessing and cursing of the three sons in, in Genesis chapter 9 sets a pattern and a framework for all of human history so that there is a blessing here for Japheth, but he will always... And there's no blessing for the Hamitic races. And historically, there have only been a few times when the Hamitic races have ever defeated the Japhitic races historically. And the few times it has... They they have defeated them militarily. It has been for a very short-lived period. And then the Japhetic races will come out on top. This is the pattern of history. This doesn't mean that there is an innate Aryan superiority or anything of that nature. It is how God has planned to work out history. And we will see this in the Table of Nations in Genesis 10 and 11 because as you go through those names of the sons... Those names become the, the tribal names for their descendants, and that's how they're known throughout the, the Scripture. So when you get into prophetic passages in Ezekiel and other passages, you will see certain tribal ethnic groups with, with names that aren't modern names, but they're names that go back to the names in Genesis 10 and Genesis 11. So the, the curse on Ham... And the cursing and blessing of Ham, Shem, and Japheth sets the, sets the framework for all of human history. And then in verse 28 and 29, we have the conclusion to this Toledot section that Noah lived after the flood 350 years so that all the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Now, before we wrap up, let's just get a quick conclusion. What have we seen in this section? First of all, it emphasizes judgment salvation, that there is judgment for sin, but God provides deliverance. And this is the primary spiritual lesson of the Noahic flood, is judgment salvation, there will be judgment for sin. Second point, grace precedes judgment. God gave grace to Noah, and there was 120 years of a proclamation of the gospel before there was a judgment, and this is true both personally and nationally. Grace always precedes divine judgment, whether it involves an individual or a nation. Third, the flood judgment foreshadows the future judgment of the earth. The flood is used in the New Testament as a type of the final judgment on the earth, which will not be by water uh, but by fire. It is also used, fourth point, it's also used to foreshadow the rapture, that just as God delivered the eight from the tribulation of the flood, so God will deliver the church from the seven-year tribulation that is yet future. Fifth, it is also used in the New Testament as a type or a picture of salvation and eternal security, that the believers in the ark were saved from the devastation of God's judgment in the same way that believers who are in Christ are secure from eternal condemnation. Sixth, in 1 Peter chapter 3, it's about verse 17 and 18, there's a parallel of baptism with Noah that is drawn to baptism with the Holy Spirit, indicating those who are identified with Noah were saved just as those who are identified with Christ in the baptism of the Holy Spirit will also be saved. Uh, Seventh, this foreshadows Israel's history in terms of their righteousness under their law in contrast to the unrighteousness of the pagans and the Canaanites. Further, point number eight, foreshadows history in that Ham's descendants, specifically Egypt and Babylon, will enslave Israel, but ultimately... The greatest descendant of Shem, the Lord Jesus Christ, will bring them as well as all nations into sub- subjugation during the millennial kingdom. that's psalm eighty seven isaiah nineteen nineteen to twenty five and isaiah sixty six uh, verses nineteen to twenty. okay, that concludes this section, and we will start with the table of nations next week in Genesis ten and 11 with our heads bowed and our eyes closed father we thank you for this opportunity to study your word to be challenged once again with the message of your grace but also of your sovereignty over human history how man is a fallen creature yet we uh, we need salvation we need redemption and again we see the pattern of your grace and redemption in this particular episode Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we studied this evening, give us a broader understanding of how you're working in history. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Okay, I want to give a little report for about 15 minutes or so on this last trip I took over to to Russia. And I've got some slides and pictures. We'll turn the projector on. This trip was a little different from any that I have taken before in that the organization that invited me over there is called East-West Ministries. I know the uh, man who's the vice president of uh, training for East-West Ministries. And he, um, a couple of years ago when we had my book on spiritual warfare translated into Russian for distribution down in in, uh, Kiev... I went over and was teaching with Jim Myers on uh, spiritual warfare and the angelic conflict. We had the book translated, and I sent copies to a number of missionaries I knew that were working in different parts of the former Soviet Union. So as a result of that, the area director for east-west missions in uh, Moscow invited wanted me to come over and do some seminars for pastors and church leaders on uh, the angelic conflict and on spiritual warfare. They're just they're being inundated with all the Pentecostal, bind Satan and rebuke the devil kind of nonsense, and and a lot of that stuff has been translated into Russian. And even to this day, we don't. The only book that I know of, or that anybody else knows of, that's been translated into Russian really deals with what the Bible says is the book that Tommy and I wrote on uh, what the Bible teaches about spiritual warfare. So last September, Joe called me from, Joe Wall called me from Moscow to ask me to come over and to bring as many books as I could. So we took the last of our, we had printed 3,000 books last year. And I called, uh, when I got a hold of Jim in March, they had 250 left. So, we took those, shipped those two hundred and fifty up to Moscow and took a bunch up to uh, St Petersburg. There were two groups, one in St Petersburg and another group down in a city of about six hundred thousand called uh, Razan. Razan is uh, uh, considered generally a small uh, a small town, it's not a big city like either St. Petersburg, which has a population. It'll get there. Okay, I'm playing with it while I'm talking. Um, it turned itself off while I was teaching class. Um, while we were, uh, St. Petersburg has a population of about 5 million. Moscow has an official population of about 12 million. 12 million but unofficially closer to $20 million. They ha- There's a lot of... Uh, in, the, in Russia, they still uh, have to register everybody. They, all the citizens are registered, and they have to um, uh, stay... They're supposed to stay where they're registered. If they don't, they move to another city uh, without buying real estate. They're not there legally, so there's a lot of people there who are in Moscow who are considered illegal the wife of one of my friends who's a missionary. He married a uh, Russian lady from St. Petersburg, which is a picture on the screen from St. Petersburg, and she is, um, of course, in Moscow illegally until they can buy some land and change property. So this is just some sites from uh, St. Petersburg to give you a little bit of an idea of what the city looks like. It's a very beautiful city. It was designed by Peter the Great in the early part of the 17th century. They just celebrated their 300th anniversary, and they tried to outdo the French. So if you've ever been to Paris or to Versailles, uh, what they tried to do at the Hermitage in Peterhof was far beyond that. Well, while I was there, I met with a group. I want to see if I can pull. I had these slides up a minute ago. Uh, I met with a group. At a Korean Presbyterian Seminary, and the Koreans have a have a large presence in uh, the former Soviet Union. They uh, these are mostly from South Korea. I mean, the Christian missionaries there are from South Korea, and this is where we met in this particular room. And there were about fifty-five to sixty students. There, were, I would say, seventy-five percent of them were were women. Most of them were between the age. Of I would say 20 and 30, but there were a, uh, maybe a third of the people there were a little older. Uh, there were some pastors, some uh, others that were there, and they seemed to be a very responsive uh, group. And while I'm talking, I'm just going to run uh, through some of the slides. I didn't get a chance to edit a lot of these. One of the young men with East West Ministries was there and took a, a large number of uh, pictures. So you can see. He got some pictures around the city, and these were some of the students that were there. They seemed to be very interested, very responsive uh, to what was taught. I found out later, when I was asked at the conclusion of both seminars, the one here and the one at Razan, was asked which group I thought was the better uh, group. I thought the Saint Petersburg group was. They were, seemed a little livelier. There were they. Uh, asked some good questions, there didn't seem to be any antagonism, and yet the guy told me, uh, Dennis told me, that actually the group in Razan was much more responsive. About half the people in St. Petersburg were Pentecostal. They didn't agree with what I was saying, but they weren't going to argue with me. The people down in in, uh, Razan I thought, were antagonistic because they asked a lot of hard questions. And they were, that group was mostly men, mostly pastors between, I'd say, late 30s up to one guy that was there was 76. And they were asking me all the hard questions that the Pentecostals asked them and they can't answer. So I thought they were antagonistic, but they were just trying to get more ammunition. So they were, they were, uh, um, that turned out to be the more responsive group. Some of these were, were Korean, uh, But it was it was a pretty, pretty good group of people overall. Uh, the, this is a picture of Mikhail on the left, who's the regional director in St. Petersburg for East West Ministries, and a couple of the other, uh, uh, the other man was is a pastor, and they were also uh, in attendance at the uh, at the seminar. I was there for two days, taught from ten o'clock in the morning until. Six o'clock at night, this was my translator. And he did a pretty good job. And this is how I usually teach. I use a, use a projector with uh, a Bible study program I have that has the Russian text. And that way I can put the Russian text up on the screen as well as I also have the English there. So that allows us to pick out any, any translation problems in the Russian version. While I'm, if I'm tra- reading the English, they can double the translator double checks with the with the Russian. Now I was there for two days, and then uh, we would eat. They they would provide a uh, lunch every day, which was and about every hour there was a tea break and cookie break, and uh, they would provide a little lunch, which was usually soup. And some kind of macaroni or rice-based uh, dish that uh, had some few vegetables and a little meat uh, chopped up in it. That not well, you not. Uh, these are not very affluent people. I mean, the average income for the av- for a person in Saint Petersburg or Moscow is probably five or six hundred dollars uh, a month. And There's our group shot. Two or three of them. I want to just fast forward through a number of these to uh, get to the pictures at Razan. That was in a much more. Here's a. This is a picture. Dennis got some. He was playing tourist, I think. He, this is a picture of the going down into the subway in Saint Petersburg. Razan was quite a bit different it was a it wasn't a an urban area it wasn't a metropolitan area but uh six hundred thousand to us sounds like a pretty good size but when you're talking about cities of five million or uh, twenty million it's quite a bit quite a bit different uh this is vadim I can't pronounce his last name. he is the uh director for east west Ministries for all of Russia. He's lived in the United States off and on probably six or seven times, so he spoke very good English. After a while, let me tell you, after I've been there about seven days, I am so tired of hearing Russian spoken with, I mean, English spoken with a really weird accent. (laughs) And you have to work hard to try to figure out what people are saying, because number one, most of them were taught how to speak English by, in a British system of pronunciation by someone who had never heard a Brit speak English. (laughs) So they have some rather unusual vowel pronunciations. but And the, the, the fellow sitting to my right there is Dennis Gostoff. He was my liaison while I was there and uh, did a good job. This was when we were riding the train down to uh, Razan. Now, I rode on several different modes of transportation this time. I got to fly on an aeroflot plane from, uh, or as Jim Myers calls it, aeroplop. From, from uh, St. Petersburg to Moscow. Now, there's about four inches less room between the seats. Think about that. And when you have an overhead rack, it's not enclosed, it's just a shelf. And you just stick it up there and hope that nobody hits a bump and falls out and lands on your head. And they are very insistent when the flight attendants come through and they're going to give you coffee or tea, they want you to take that coffee or tea. They won't take yet for an answer. So you, we um, that was unfortunately it was only an hour flight, and on the way back it was really interesting. Of all the things that that I remember, is of course I, I think Sunday morning I mentioned seeing the semi, the European-made semi going through the streets of Moscow with the Confederate battle flag on it. And then there was a group of four or five men, that young men in their thirties, who had. Just come back from a vacation in Vietnam, and they were. Uh, one guy goes out through the security, comes back in carrying. He's got a bottle of beer between each finger, all open, and they're partying all the way out up the gangway. There's no open container law, so uh, you can go to places. I got to the airport at six, no, five thirty the night, the morning that I left, and. I was in line to get a cup of coffee behind three men who were in line to get their morning beer. So alcohol is a problem there. This man on the left, his name is Pavel, and he is sort of the regional director for the Baptist churches uh, in Razan. And uh, his unfortunately, he didn't make the conference. His mother-in-law died the day before, and so he had to take care of that. This is the, my Russian hotel room. And this one really was rather nice. It had, it had a small uh, couch. The one I had the last night I was there didn't even have pictures on the wall, and had a bed that was about that same size. And that was that, and a small refrigerator and TV that only had nine channels, all in Russian. That was it. <laughs> now, th- one of the interesting things you run into that I had never because I always stay in one of uh, in, uh, an apartment in Kiev. I had never run into this before. But there's something that happens in Russian hotels about 11 o'clock if you're a single man. You get a telephone call. And, uh, of course, the guy on the other end just speaking Russian, so I didn't know what was going on. And, and I left my room right after that to go down to the uh, desk to use their computer to get on the Internet and check my email. When I got back to the room, the security guy was up there with the stable of uh, hookers so that I wouldn't have to spend the night alone. And um, he knew I couldn't speak Russian, so he's ha- he's got a little sign up, you know, three three hours for eight hundred rubles, which is twenty seven dollars. So I guess that's a good price. <laughs> it was, uh, you know, they were, all looked like they were eighteen or nineteen years years of age. I mean, it was just just a horrible thing. They probably got five dollars out of the whole deal, and it was just a, uh, a terrible thing. And and then the last night I was in. In uh, St. Petersburg, they just slipped a little brochure under the door, you know, all tastefully done with a phone number so you don't have to spend the night alone. But I, I told Steve about it, my my uh, friend who's a missionary in, in Moscow. I said, I never run into this before. And he travels for uh, uh, Slavic Gospel Association all over, the, all over Russia all the time. I mean, he's going somewhere every week. He said, oh, that's your standard operating procedure, if you're a single man, they're going to come and they're going to call you at 11 o'clock. So that's learn. That was the hotel. That's and it snowed that day. We had uh, about six or seven inches of snow. And I had probably the best translator I've ever had there. His name was Archie Ohm and he was a si- simultaneous translator, so we could really cover uh, a lot of material. And as I said earlier, this group in Razan was mostly uh, Baptist pastors. And this man on the right was a Pentecostal pastor, but this was like the fourth seminar he had been involved with, with East-West Ministries, and was very appreciative of everything they had said. So there are Pentecostals who are more extreme and others that are, that are trying to be more biblical, and he's one of the more conservative ones. So this little disc that they're holding up is a uh, CD that has been put together by a man down in Dallas that contains a lot of uh, translations of a lot of different theological works, and he's just putting out a new edition which has the Spiritual Warfare book on it as well. This man on the on the right, 76 years old, been a pastor for uh, about... 15 years. He did not become saved until later in life, so he missed out on some of the uh, oppression that uh, happened to many pastors. I talked to my friend Steve, who had married a girl from, a lady from St. Petersburg. Her grandfather was a Baptist pastor back under Stalin in the mid 50s. One night they came and arrested him, they never saw him again. And you can hear many stories. It's real tough. I've also heard from missionaries that it's real tough to teach some of these older guys because you don't know what we went through. I mean, they were arrested and spent three or four years in Lubyanka prison in in, uh, Moscow or some going through torture for their faith. And uh, they don't want to hear what you know about the Bible because they suffered for their faith. But this guy was a great guy and... and, uh, Every now and then somebody would start arguing with me, and he would he would stop, and there would be this argument going on back there, and he would straighten him out and say, "He knows what he's talking about," <laughs> so you shut and he would shut him up. Anybody have any questions? It always gives me a great appreciation for what happened at the Tower of Babel every time I go over there. It just seems so difficult to go through the translation process and to even see if they're, do they understand what it is that we're, that's being communicated. One time in Kazakhstan I said, how much are they understanding? Well, maybe 30%. Russian Orthodox, that's the official, and the Russian Orthodox, uh, you know, that's the state religion, and they have tremendous power, and there are areas in Russia where they have managed to get all of the Protestants out, all the evangelicals out. And if you're an evangelical in some areas in Russia, you can't buy property, you can't meet as a church unless you get permission from the Orthodox church. And so they have a real power base. Janice? Janice? yeah I was teaching on spiritual warfare. I was covering the whole yeah. okay, I think that covers it so it was a it was a good trip. I don't know that I would go back with that group again simply because you're in there for a you know two days and you're gone. you don't know how how much you're really doing whereas when I go over there to Kiev every year with with jim uh i'm you're with people that, number one, there's a lot of doctrinal pastors who are going over there as well, and so you can really build on what uh, what each of us is doing, and so you can see a real growth and understanding there, whereas there's more of a, a diversity among these students. And then some of the English-speaking students that Jim has, for example, uh, he's got one student I've mentioned before that's from Tajikistan that was at that pastors' conference uh, we went to in when was that 2000 or 2001, and uh, then he finally was able to come up to Kiev and go through the school there. And he'll go back to Tajikistan this summer, and he will be he will know more about the Bible than anybody else in Tajikistan. It's one of the southern republics still; it's primarily Muslim. And one of the things that may come out of this trip that I just took was that my connection with Vadim, and Vadim was telling me that they were hoping that in the next year they could go down and they could locate some national evangelicals in Tajikistan to be involved in an evangelistic, uh, some evangelistic crusades down in the Tajikistan area. And I said, I know the guy who's, you know, going to be going back there, one guy who has gone through the tr- Jim's training in in Kiev, and so you know the upshot. You know one of the many things that may come out of this is just my being able to put Ulan together with Vadim, and that may bear fruit in some ministry uh, another year or so down the road in Tajikistan. So that's just something to pray for. Okay, all right. Well, it's a quarter till, so I've kept you all long enough. I will see you on Sunday morning.